An estimated 65 million or more people around the world are still coping with long COVID. Scientists are racing to understand why some people develop long-term symptoms after an infection, as well as how to detect, treat, and prevent it. There is an association with the, the severity of, of underlying disease, so the number of comorbidities that people have is, does seem to be associated with how likely they are to go on uh, to develop long COVID. Dr. Leora Horwitz is one of the leaders of the National Institute of Health Study of Long COVID. She's the director of the Center for Healthcare Innovation and Delivery Science at NYU Langone Health, where they're integrating the research activities of almost 200 clinical sites. Vaccination does reduce the risk of long COVID. And this goes just along with that general understanding that we have that the sicker you are initially, the more likely you are to have long COVID. And one thing that vaccination does very well is it prevents people from getting very sick. And this is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, Dr. Horwitz, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, there's so much we want to get to here, but let's start with what Dr. Fauci recently told us. He says, we still do not understand the pathogenesis of long COVID. However, we do know research has found biological changes that may occur in association with symptoms following a person getting COVID. I wonder if you could share with our listeners what more you could fill us in on this. Yeah, that's definitely true. Both statements that we don't yet know much and that we're learning a lot. Um, we, we still don't perfectly understand what is causing people not to recover from their COVID infection and have symptoms that last months, perhaps even years. Um, but there are increasing uh, numbers of studies coming out to show all kinds of different derangements in the body. Uh, we have had some evidence of the virus itself persisting. We have some evidence of inflammation or irritation uh, of different uh, parts of the body. We have evidence of tiny little blood clots. And we have evidence of scar, all kinds of different things that we're seeing in the body, some or all of which might be contributing to these symptoms. Well, a key part of your work, uh, as I understand it, has been getting to a working definition of long COVID that lets us all be on the same song sheet, incredibly helpful. And I understand that you've been instrumental in creating the 12 symptom scoring system. I think our uh, viewers and listeners would be really interested in hearing about this. Tell us more about the 12 symptom scoring system. Sure. So we have um, the, the National Institutes of Health has funded this um, recover program researching uh, COVID to understand recovery. And among the uh, studies in that umbrella in that program is a large study of adults. Um, this study includes people who have had COVID and people who haven't had COVID. It includes people who have long-term symptoms and don't have long-term symptoms. So we have a big variety of people in the study. We have over uh, uh, 14,000 patients in the study right now. Um, and so what we have been doing is asking them questions every three months about tons of different symptoms, asking, do you have this? Do you have that? Do you have this other thing? Uh, in fact, we asked about 37 different symptoms uh, that people might experience. And what we did in this first look at the first 10,000 of these patients, these participants, is we looked to see which of those symptoms are more commonly present long-term in people who did have COVID versus people who didn't have COVID. 
because remember, lots of people have symptoms of all types, and it's not necessarily related to COVID. So what we were looking for are symptoms that were more prevalent in people with COVID than in people without. And it turns out just about every symptom is more common in people who had COVID than people who didn't. And, and people have all these different kinds of symptoms. And it's not so surprising because we took this list of, of 37 symptoms from patients themselves. So we, we, we started with a list that, that we knew that people were experiencing. So that's kind of cumbersome to manage and to deal with. That's a lot of things to try to keep track of. So what we did is we did a lot of math to try to figure out which of those symptoms were most helpful, most different between people with COVID and without. And that got us down to 12. But I want to be clear that the, the people who had those symptoms, they also had all the other ones too. So it's not that those are the only symptoms that people get. They're not even the most common necessarily but they are the, they're, they're the ones that help us most distinguish between people who had COVID and who had didn't. And then we look to see which of those were you know, especially different, which of those were a little bit less different, and we gave points to them depending on how different they were. So for example, loss of smell and taste was very uncommon in people who didn't have COVID and really quite common in those who did. So that gets a lot of points. Something like fatigue is also very common in people who uh, had COVID, but also kind of common in people who didn't. Many people are fatigued, so that gets you only one point. So, um, so we gave points to each of these symptoms, and it so happens that the number 12 comes up again. What we found was that the, a total number of points of 12, 12 points or more, made it very likely that that was a person who had COVID in the past, probably as a person who had long COVID, whereas very few people who didn't have COVID had 12 points or more of, of symptoms. That doesn't mean they had all 12 symptoms, just means they had 12 points worth of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so we used that as a, as, a, as a cutoff to say, above here is very probable that this is a person with long COVID. Again, it doesn't mean that someone who has fewer points doesn't have long COVID. Certainly, there are people who have long-term symptoms from COVID that don't quite have 12 points. But above that, we're really, we feel pretty confident that that's somebody with it. And that means we can do science on those people. We can study those folk and try to understand what's going on in the body. What is happening over time? Are they getting better? We can look for all the things that other people have reported in studies and see, is that true in this group that we feel pretty confident about? Well, there were certainly 12 reasons why there's no single test that can de definitely uh, diagnose long COVID as a unique condition. Uh, but I'm wondering what are the current diagnostic and treatment options for people who believe they may have the, uh, the condition? Yeah, well, there's two approaches to treatment for any disease. One is to treat the symptoms and the other is to treat the underlying cause. Right now, because we're just not sure what the underlying cause is, most of the treatments for long COVID are more focused on the symptoms. So if you are a person who's having trouble breathing, we focus on treatments that we know are good for people who have trouble breathing. You are a person who's having trouble thinking and concentrating, we apply treatments that we know are good for people who have difficulty thinking and concentrating for whatever reason, post-concussion or, you know, or whatever, right? So, um, so the treatments right now are mostly symptom-focused huh. rather than underlying disease-focused. But there are a lot of clinical trials happening right now that are trying to get more at that underlying cause to try to uh, see if there's something we could do that will actually fix the, the underlying. Is there, is there any 
relationship to the variants that have come out? Are they impacting this assessment as well as you walk through them and you're probably trying to keep track of, you know, the, the more underlying, uh, you know, uh, indicators of uh, which one of the many variants and Dr. Fauci walked through the uh, whole numerology that is associated with, uh, uh, with these variants? There are definitely differences in the kind of illness that people are getting with the different variants. We know that that first variant, that original uh, variant was very severe. People became very ill uh, and many are having long-term symptoms just from that initial huh. um, insult to the body. Um, but in this, in Recover, in our study, we have people from all those different time periods. And um, even when we look at people who had the most recent, the Omicron variant, and who were vaccinated, we still are seeing a pretty substantive rate huh. of long-term symptoms. We, we found about 10% uh, in this study of those folks who are Omicron infected and, and vaccinated. So, so although it probably does matter what variant people had, we are seeing long COVID even with the less severe variants. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Horowitz, besides uh, which variant, what are we seeing as the risk factors uh, for long COVID? I, I know one thing we've certainly seen written about is that if you were sick enough to require hospitalization, that was a risk factor. But what other risk factors in terms of people's health history, age, gender, uh, comorbidities, anything else uh, are you seeing as now as, as defined risk factors for long COVID? We're actually just looking at that as we speak in our recover data. So I, I look forward to being able to tell you the results of that from recover. But there are lots of other studies that have looked at that too. Um, and the, the findings so far are actually relatively similar to the sorts of things we see with other post-viral conditions. So it seems to be more prevalent in women than in men, even though men did get, being male was a, a risk for being more severely ill, uh, at least in the early strains. But here we're seeing more women than men. Um, there is an association with the, the severity of, of underlying disease. So the number of comorbidities that people have is, does seem to be associated with how likely they are to go on uh, to develop long COVID. Um, and people have begun to look at other things like lab tests and, um, you know, and medications and things like that, but nothing really definitive yet. You know, um, we, I just want to, make, okay. I want to make one other comment, which is that although it's more common to have long COVID with severe initial illness and more common to have long COVID if you are yourself ill at baseline, the sheer numbers of the uh, pandemic mean that there are probably more people who had mild disease and people who have no comorbidities who have long COVID than, than the reverse. So even though the risk is higher, the sheer numbers are such that there are plenty of people who had mild COVID who are perfectly healthy who now have long COVID. Yeah. You know, I want to pull the thread on Margaret's question there. And, you know, we've, we were involved with NIH, uh, all of us program uh, since the IRB development. And one of the reasons that uh, Dr. Collins uh, put that initiative together was really to make sure that any cohort represents all of us. So in addition to uh, men with gender and age, uh, how reflective is the group that you're looking at uh, that would reflect uh, all the diversity within our country? 
Yeah, actually, that's something we work really hard uh, and prioritize uh, highly. So Recover, the adult study, uh, is located in 33 different states across the country, plus Washington, D.C., plus Puerto Rico. Um, we set as a target uh, at the beginning of the study that we should enroll certainly the to look like the U.S. population, but mm -hmm. ideally even overrepresent yeah. uh, underrepresented or minority populations because they were a higher risk for getting COVID in the first place. Our population now looks exactly like the U.S. Uh, we are about 16% um, African-American, national average is 14%. We're at 17% Hispanic, national average I think is 19 or something like that. So we're very close. Uh, we are well overrepresented in Asian populations. We're at about 7% versus national average of one or two. So, um, so we really have worked very hard uh, to make sure that our population in the study looks like America. And that's partly why we, um, we took about, uh, it's been about a year and a half uh, to enroll our, our participants. We're at about 95% done now. Um, and we slow walked that a little bit on purpose so that we could make sure we were outreaching to communities that really don't often participate in research and need to be represented. Well, I think well, that, that would give really, great, great confidence yeah. to, to the American yeah. public. And NYU does such a great job in terms of uh, the diversity of people it sees. You know, there's been research uh, reports indicating that long COVID leads to worsening or underlying neurological conditions, including Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. What, what do we definitely, definitively know now about those relationships? You know, that's a good question. We don't definitively know anything really about anything. <laughs> um, clearly, cognitive um, symptoms, brain fog, confusion, trouble concentrating, trouble remembering things uh, are a cardinal symptom of long COVID. It is, they are among the most common things reported, uh, independent of a formal diagnosis of, of any kind of dementia. Um, we know that the initial um, COVID infection often caused uh, strokes or, or mini strokes in people, and that could also be contributing to people's uh, difficulty in concentrating. And then, of course, we isolated all of our most vulnerable elders for good reason to keep them alive, but that definitely um, uh, worsened people's cognitive uh, trajectory because they had fewer social interactions. And so it could be that people who had Alzheimer's previously have worsening cognition, not so much because of the COVID proper, but because of the change in their experience. So it's hard to disentangle all of these things. Mm -hmm. you, have a, you have a very challenging body of work uh, here with all of the complexity, but uh, we'll add another one to it. There's some preliminary research from the Harvard TH Chan School of Public Health uh, that suggests that people with high stress levels were more likely to develop long COVID after an acute infection. Love to get your thoughts on that. And is there a behavioral health component to this, perhaps maybe more than we first realized? Well, you know, this has always been a, a longstanding question with a lot of these post-viral illnesses. Um, you will notice if you look at the list of the 12 symptoms um, that anxiety, depression, mood disorders are not are not in that list. They didn't make it um, because they are not as they're not as distinctive. People who haven't had COVID have plenty of anxiety and depression and stress, and the pandemic um, world was stressful for everybody. Um, so we don't find that to be a cardinal manifestation, um, although we do see a high prevalence of 
anxiety and depression, mood disorders, and so on uh, in people. Um, we are actually uh, really explicit about that in Recover. We ask um, not only questions about people's physical symptoms, we ask about their mental health, we ask about their uh, experience with loss and with grief, because we know that's an issue uh, in the pandemic time. We ask about um, PTSD. We ask also about, we have a, a perceived stress score index that we measure, and we also measure their community. We measure um, people's, their experiences of discrimination. We measure their neighborhood cohesion and what their neighborhood is like. So we really try to get a sense of the other factors, the, the non-biomedical factors that influence people's um, not only their symptoms, but their ability to recover from illness, their ability to take off time if they need it, um, all of these things that we know affect people's health. Uh, so we will we'll be looking at that. Um, but but fundamentally, I do just want to say that this is not this is not primarily or exclusively a mental health disorder. Hmm. You know, uh, I'm wondering how much time it's taking for patients with long COVID to get better. There are reports they're getting better quicker than first feared. And I guess throw into the equation is Paxlovid also sort of being evaluated in terms of the, uh, separating them out, those who, who uh, either took Paxlovid or who, who didn't into your, uh, into your study. Yeah, well, we measure that uh, in this observational cohort. And, and I should mention that Recover the Umbrella has a number of other studies. There is a study of children. There is a study of people who have died after COVID. And there's an electronic health record uh, study that has millions of electronic health records. And that study has looked at the effect of Paxlovid on, uh, on longer-term uh, COVID. And those results, I think, are coming out shortly. Um, so Anything so that you've heard on that that you might want to share with us before? I actually just Even I, a glimmer. I don't know. <laughs> um, so not, I can't share those results. Uh, but I don't really know them. Uh, but that is a core interest of ours for sure. Um, so, so we will look at it in the future. We haven't looked at it yet. Um, there are clinical trials starting of Paxlovid, including in the NIH Recover program, uh, because of this theory that was one of the theories is that maybe there's viral persistence. So maybe even without having an active infection, maybe Paxlovid will be helpful. Um, those are those clinical trials are ongoing. But are you seeing that people are recovering uh, quicker, or what? What are you seeing right now observationally? So um, we certainly see a path of improvement. So people who have symptoms at three months, fewer of them have symptoms at six months, fewer of them have symptoms at nine months. Among the people who have had symptoms for a year or more, there's less improvement. So people definitely get to a plateau. In the study that we just published, that first look from Recover, um, we had a, a certain number of people who were measured at six months and at nine months after, um, after their infection. And about a third of the people who met that 12-point criteria at six months didn't meet it anymore uh, at nine months. So there was, we certainly were seeing improvement there. And, and I, I certainly hope that that continues as well. Well, Dr. Horowitz, all of this really uh, speaks to me to the need to get vaccinated for COVID. We're nearing our annual flu uh, vaccination season, and you know it's a good time to remind people about that and that getting the COVID booster shot is a good idea. And that, that really does help people avoid getting long COVID, doesn't it? Do you think we're emphasizing that message enough? 
I hope so. I emphasize it every time I, I speak. So I thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that again. Um, we have now ample evidence, including from the Recover EHR studies and this most recent study that we did, um, that uh, that vaccination does reduce the risk of long COVID. And this goes just along with that general understanding that we have that the sicker you are initially, the more likely you are to have long COVID. And one thing that vaccination does very well is it prevents people from getting very sick. You might still get COVID. Mm -hmm. I got COVID despite being vaccinated, but I was barely ill. Uh, and so we know that the vaccination reduces the severity of acute illness and, and, and there is now good evidence that it reduces the risk of long COVID as well. Um, I, I do think that hopefully we, we embed this into our annual flu uh, sort of cadence so that you come, come to the fall, you get your flu and your COVID, uh, and then uh, we can try to, hopefully that becomes just a standard uh, for people usually. You know, the website stat looked into long COVID and posted a headline that said that the NIH has poured a billion into long COVID research with little to show for it. And that's that's a quote. Uh, it pointed out that there were been delays in a, and says a sense of urgency is missing. I'm wondering if you could uh, give us your perspective uh, on uh, the impact of the investment that's been made and uh, and how you all are leaning into this research project? Sure. Well, setting aside the fact that it's taking up, you know, 24-7 of, of my time and everyone else's time, we certainly feel a sense of urgency. Uh, but let me let me comment on a couple things. So one is that Congress allocated a billion dollars for the Recover program as a whole. That includes all of the Recover stuff, the clinical trials that have yet to happen, the cohort uh, follow-up that has yet to happen, the uh, you know all of the other infrastructure. So we have actually spent only a small fraction of that billion dollars because it's intended to last for many years so that we can do all the research we need to do. Mm -hmm. So I just want to first comment on that. Um, the second thing I want to say is that... Um, we, we have to always balance um, the need for rigorous and reproducible science with the need for speed. And that's just a constant challenge. So as we talked about earlier, we made a deliberate decision to make sure that our cohort looks like America. We could probably have filled it really fast with a bunch of you know, 40 year old white ladies like me uh, who were very connected and very, um, engaged and very had great access to healthcare and were very computer literate and could get to our website and fill it out quickly. But we didn't want to do that. We wanted to make sure that our study really looked like our country. And, and that takes more time. And the same is true for the pediatric study. They took a little extra time to get going because it's really important to set up a study that is going to be safe for children that are participating. So that's the second thing I want to say. And the third thing I want to say is the amount of information and data and uh, stuff that we've collected already, I think is spectacularly fast. Uh, so we, um, the NIH awarded the sites and the coordinating uh, bodies in around May of uh, 2021. We had a full protocol for this outrageously complicated study uh, developed within a month. We had contracts, an IRB protocol, approvals, all of that stuff for 200-something sites around the country uh, in place by September. We enrolled our first participant into Recover Adult in October. I cannot think of another study that has happened that fast uh, and with that speed. And we have enrolled well over 14,000 people uh, since then. 
Tell me, will the data be available to the scientific community and what, what's the timing on that so people can also uh, build on your research? Absolutely. All, all data um, that's sort of funded by the NIH uh, will be publicly uh, available as is their standard. Um, in terms of the timing for that, we are working as quickly as we can to organize that. Um, we are um, needing to uh, organize the data, clean it up, to connect it to the appropriate specimens and so on. So I actually don't know the timing for that, but it won't be very long. It's not, we're not going to wait 10 years to make this available to the public. Um, and in the interim, we're also still trying to make it available even within Recover uh, investigators. We have thousands of investigators within Recover um, that are, that are uh, interested in using the data too. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Horowitz, given all of this, it almost seems preposterous. I have to ask you the next question, but you've spoken uh, before about uh, physicians who are doubtful about recognizing long COVID as legitimate. Is that situation improving? Are there still skeptics that there is such a phenomenon as long COVID in the medical community? I think there are. I, um, I, I certainly think there are. Uh, we don't have good data about that nationally. I don't think anyone has surveyed doctors to see what they think. Um, so it's hard for me to put numbers on it, but I hear all the time um, from our participants. I went to my doctor and they didn't believe me, or I went to my doctor and they told me I was fine, or they went, I went to my doctor and they told me I had these 10 other diseases uh, or, you know, or whatever. So, so I think that is still a problem. I, I also will point out it's not just doctors, it's the general community also. Uh, is not yet fully aware. And um, one of the challenges we have in recruiting uh, from rural uh, communities, from uh, minority communities, is that often they haven't heard about it either. Um, or there's a stigma associated uh, with this idea that you might um, be weak uh, and like you just haven't recovered and everyone else around you has and you know there's something wrong with you. Yeah. So I think that's a challenge not only for doctors but for uh, the general public. Dr. Horowitz, I, I, I know the answer to this question, which is if people think they're suffering from long COVID, what they should do is obviously go to their provider. But you've, you've raised an interesting point when they're, you know, a provider who is dismissing that. Uh, should they look uh, for a clinical trial to enroll in? Are, are there support groups? What else can they do on this journey, which can often be very difficult because of the complexity of the uh, uh, impact that COVID's had on people. Yeah, you know, one of the um, most amazing things I think about this pandemic is the degree to which um, patients themselves have, have self-organized uh, and have provided that kind of knowledge and support um, that, uh, that honestly was really missing in the medical community. And most, the, much of what we knew early on and still to this day, uh, what we know uh, comes from patient groups and patient advocacy organizations, and there are a number of them that are very active on Facebook and Instagram and elsewhere uh, to support people and have the, let them share their, their symptoms and their challenges and their treatments and so on. There also are long COVID or post-COVID clinics in many cities. They are oversubscribed, the wait times are long, and that's a challenge, but they, they do exist. Uh, uh, in many places. And there has been new interest in, in new federal funding opportunities available for sort of centers of excellence for treatment of, of long COVID that, um, that are in the process of review right now. So hopefully there will be more of those uh, as well starting. What are, what are you doing with your international colleagues on this issue? Because obviously COVID's a global uh, 
problem. Uh, the pandemic was global. Uh, is there anybody you're looking at? Uh, I know England and a couple of other people were probably a little more advanced in some of their uh, data gathering. And, uh, but who are you keeping your eye on internationally? Um, yeah, we've actually had a number of uh, phone calls and uh, attempts to coordinate our questionnaires and things like that with groups overseas. We talk to the WHO uh, regularly, uh, people in England. There are groups in uh, most of Western Europe um, that are working on this. Uh, so we we do we've really tried to um, make sure that our the sorts of things we're asking about are aligned and the um, questions that we're asking are similar. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Horowitz, for joining us. I want you to know that our past shows on long COVID are some of the most watched on YouTube. So we know this is a very important topic. And thanks to our audience. There's more online about conversations on healthcare, including a way to sign up for email updates. And our address is chcradio.com. Dr. Horowitz, thank you. We will continue to look forward to the results of your research. It's a great pleasure. I thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Continued success and thanks for all the work that you're doing. Thank you. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.